Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 17. If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And this morning we find ourselves in John 17. And as we have said before, by the time we come to John 17, we are only hours away from Jesus' crucifixion. Once again, by way of review, the evening started in the upper room back in chapter 13 with Jesus and his disciples observing the Feast of Passover together. And yet, as we study chapters 13 through 16, it was obvious that Jesus was more concerned, far more concerned, about his disciples' welfare than he was for his own. You see, he knew that after he returned to his father shortly, and they began to take the gospel into the world, fulfilling the Great Commission. They would be the targets of Satan's unrelenting attacks by his demon foot soldiers and the world system which he controls. A system that he would use incessantly to trip them up, take them down, and even remove them from the earth through martyrdom. And this was heavy on the Lord's heart that night. And he stressed this even after they left the upper room and were now making their way through the streets of Jerusalem toward the Golden or the Eastern Gate where they would exit the city, cross the Kindred Valley, go up the Mount of Olives, and in particular, uh, their target was the Garden of Gethsemane where he would spend the next few hours in prayer before being arrested and put on trial the next day. But this was on his heart. And so even after they left the upper room, he continued to stress... Um, what was coming? He wanted to prepare them uh, as they were making their way through the streets of Jerusalem. He wanted to drive this home, that these things not take them by surprise. Again, you can read John 15, verses 18 through 20, how he talks about this. How that if they hated me, they're going to hate you also. If you are of the world, the world will love its own. But you're not of the world. I've called you out of the world. Uh, even so, the world is going to hate you and persecute you like they did me, right? And then the Lord stops at the eastern gate. Starting with chapter 15, he continues to teach them. At the end of chapter 16, he gives them a, what is, is assumed to be a shout of victory. It, I don't know if he actually shouted it, but he made an incredible de declaration. Chapter 16, verse 33, I have overcome the world. That's when his formal teaching to his disciples came to an end. He's no longer now looking at them, teaching them directly. He now lifts his eyes towards heaven. Chapter 17, he begins to pray to his father in their presence. You see, I believe he prayed this prayer in their presence because he wanted them to know what was heavy on his heart, what things he wanted them to pray for after he would return to the father. And so he uh, begins to pray and uh, continues actually to teach them indirectly through this prayer. But in essence, the bulk of Jesus' prayer that night for his disciples concerned spiritual warfare. And in particular, that his disciples would be victorious in their battle with the devil and with the fallen world system he controlled, that they, like the Lord Jesus himself, would be overcomers. And just how would they overcome the world? Well, the same way Jesus did, through the power of God unleashed through personal holiness the idea of personal holiness doesn't get a lot of christians fired up today 
But make no mistake about it, personal holiness is the key to spiritual victory. Even as Jesus pointed to his personal holiness as a basis for his victory over the world, again, chapter 16, verse 33, I have overcome the world. And that's what he's now praying basically for his disciples. So let's pick it up in verse 14 of John 17. Where Jesus is praying to his Father and says, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. As we said last time, the words holiness and sanctify both come from the same Greek root that means to be set apart. In this context, he's praying that they would be set apart from the world's values, actions, philosophies, and ideologies to be used exclusively for God's glory. Guys, this was Jesus' life on earth in a nutshell. So very simple, simply put, holiness is basically to be in the world, but to never be a part of the world. Jesus was in the world at one point. He was never a part of the world. And that's exactly the balancing act we have to maintain every day. In the world, but not letting the devil work in our hearts that in any way we become part of the world. And we stressed last time that this is the will of God for our lives. 1 Thessalonians 4 I think starting with verse, uh, verse 1, um, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. And you can read that uh, as uh, you uh, later on today. But this is the will of God. But here's the problem. He wants us to be holy in a dark world. Lights in a dark world, holy in a very immoral world. Many Christians think it's, gotten, think it's gotten so bad, and the world is so dark and so corrupt and so wicked. How in the world can we live in the world in purity and morality and righteousness as lights? Well, how did Daniel and his friends do it in Babylon? It's possible by God's grace. But how can we accomplish this? Well, we're not left to guess. Jesus just told us the main way. He told his disciples back then, and he no doubt wanted us to know this today. He said in verses 17 and 19, Father, sanctify them. The word could be translated holy. Father, make them holy by your truth. Your word is truth. I sanctify myself. I lived a personal, holy life in this world. I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. It's the word of God, right? And so once again, Jesus is communicating to us that personal holiness is the key to spiritual victory. And that personal, personal holiness is achieved by staying in, feeding upon, living out in our daily lives God's truth, his word. But as James tells us in, in James 1 verse 22, Christians can be, listen, hearers of the word, and yet not be doers of the word. 
why would a child of God, I mean, why is that? Why would a child of God take the time to come to church? Good heavens, gas is expensive enough. Why would a child of God take the time to come to church and hear the word of God being taught, but not seriously want to live it out in their daily lives? Well, first of all, just to get it on the table, it could be they're not really children of God. There's a lot of people who profess faith in Christ that have never really made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Churches are full of people who are false disciples. Many false disciples follow Jesus. Not everybody who followed Jesus Christ was a true, full-on disciple. We see that today in churches across America. People go to church for all kinds of reasons other than wanting to live for Jesus. Really, they give them lip service. It could be that many of the people who come to church and then don't ever put into practice what they learned is because they really don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They're not born again. Jesus said in John 10, 27, My sheep <laughs> hear my voice. I know them, and they what? They follow me. Following Jesus doesn't make you one of his sheep, but it does prove you are one of his sheep. Luke 6.46, Jesus said to a whole group of his disciples one day, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things that I tell you? And then from that point in Luke 6, he goes on to say that obedience to the word of God and not just hearing the word is the fruit that demonstrates whether a person is a true child of God or not. Listen, obedience doesn't make you a child of God, but it is the fruit of you being a child of God. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And it just that, you know, this is a fruit of you being a true child of God. You want to obey him. Uh, you want to do what he has said. I will have you turn to this. Too many scriptures to have you turn to all of them today, but turn to 1 John 2. In 1 John 2, I think John gives us one of the most important passages on this in the New Testament. 1 John 2, verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him. How can I know if I really know him? How, how can I know if I'm really a child of God? Well, here he says it right here. If we keep his commandments. Now, be careful because all true children of God don't always keep his commandments perfectly. We know that. The Greek here, though, is how do I know I'm really in him? I really know him. John says because you consistently or habitually obey what he has said. Not perfectly. None of us are perfect. In fact, John did begin his first epistle by saying, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we, can, and if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But the general pattern of a life of a person who is a born-again child of God is that they continually, habitually keep his commandments. Yeah, blow it once in a while, but that's not the pattern of their life. Verse 4, he who says, I know him, I'm a Christian, 
and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Obedience is the fruit of knowing Jesus. Look, as a professing Christian, you should enter into some honest self-examination to make sure that you are, in fact, a child of God. The Bible admonishes us to do this. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourself to make sure you're really in the faith. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one. If we would judge ourselves now, we wouldn't have to stand before God someday and be judged by Him by hearing Him say, I never knew you, depart from me. But listen, I know there are many who are children of God and who don't obey Him as they should. And many of them wrestle with why. I, I want to obey the Lord, but why don't I? like I should. As we brought up last week, what motivates and animates our obedience to Jesus and His Word? What will, what will take a Christian from a mere hearer of the Word to a faithful, full-on doer of the Word? Well, you know, Jesus gave us the answer to that earlier in the evening. Back in chapter 14, verse 15, He said, If you love Me, keep my commandments. Or in other words, if you say you love me, prove it by obeying me. Last week, I asked how many of you, just to kind of set up this week's message. But last week, as we were closing, I asked how many of you love Jesus? And everyone's hand went up. And I fully expected that. And I totally believe you're sincere. I believe all Christians love Jesus. But then I asked a deeper question. How many of you are in love with Jesus? And of course, that question probably caused some of you to think to yourselves, how do I know if I'm in love with Jesus or not? Now, guys, that's a fair response to a probing question. So let me try to give you some, a simple answer that will hopefully, hopefully it will help you to understand what being in love with someone looks like. This list isn't exhaustive. And it does pertain to those who are at the beginning of their relationship, who just meet and fall in love. But hear me out. When you're in love with somebody, they're the first person you think about when you open your eyes in the morning and the last person you think about before you fall asleep at night. Because when you're in love with someone, they affect your mind. They dominate your thinking. Remember how we said last week that spiritual warfare is primarily a battle for control of our thinking. And that the Bible teaches that the mind is actually the main battlefield, ground zero, if you will, in our war with the devil, the place where most spiritual warfare is fought. Why? Because Satan knows if he can control your thinking, he can control you. Even as Solomon said in Proverbs 23, verse 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And that's why sin had so little control over us when we first fell in love with Jesus and got saved. You know why? Because he dominated our thoughts. All we could do was think about Jesus. 
In those early days, sin never had a, a chance with us. I'm not saying we were perfect, but I'm telling you, we were about as close to perfect as we were ever going to get. Because we had just fallen in love with the Lord, we had just received Him as our Savior, His, He was totally on our minds. The devil knew he couldn't get in there and try to tempt us. That's why sin wasn't a, a real issue. And you know what the devil said? Okay, have your little honeymoon period. Enjoy it. I'm coming for you in six months. And that's kind of when the honeymoon began to wear off. Well, the Lord has to open up. He's got his arms around us and protecting us, giving us that honeymoon time with him. But we're not going to learn how to be good soldiers of Christ if we're always protected and shielded. So the Lord has to allow the, the, the devil to get at us here and there. It's all for, for our training and learning and growing, right? But when you first fell in love with Jesus, well, it was amazing. He dominated our thoughts, not sin, not self, him. Number two, another characteristic of being in love with somebody is that you want to please them. I mean, their happiness and not your own becomes the passion of your heart. Right? When you first fall in love with somebody, you, you, all you can do is think about them, and all you want to do is please them. When we first fell in love with the Lord, that's how we were thinking. We, all we wanted to do was, was please the Lord, uh, be in fellowship with His people, get into the Word, be in church. That's all we wanted to do was just to, to please the Lord and all we did. Number four, or I'm sorry, number three, also when you're in love with somebody, <laughs> you want to talk about them all the time. To the point where people start avoiding you because they're tired of hearing you go on and on and on about this person in your life you're so crazy in love with. Now, I have to say, I have met some Christians who did that, uh, and family members have started, and friends started to, you know, I think for a lot of us it was that way. Everywhere we went, we talked about Jesus, right? Pretty soon nobody wanted to hang out with us who were unbelievers, family, friends, right? I've had, I had a mom come to my office one time and said, you know, ever since my son's been coming to your church, that's all he ever talks to us about is Jesus. We think he's in a cult. I get that sometimes. No, he's not in a cult. He's just fallen in love with Jesus Christ. This is the difference between religion and a relationship. I'll give you one more. This is all, there's no doubt. Another characteristic or practice of being in love with someone which is, this is especially true for young women uh, in love. I mean, not, not exclusively, but predominantly, all right? You have a habit of writing the name of the person you're in love with on everything you can get your hands on. Now, again, this, I think, is more for the young ladies. Uh, you girls remember when you were uh, young, right? You were girls, you know, maybe in middle school. We called it junior high, but okay, whatever. Uh, or maybe even in high school, how you wrote the name of your boyfriend or someone you dreamed of being your boyfriend on your notebooks with the little hearts, uh, you know, on your hands and arms and whatever you, you know, whatever flat surface could act as a canvas, you wrote their name and everything. Because that's what you do when you're in love. You just want to write the person's name everywhere you can. You want to look at it, right? This, in fact, is the very thing the children of Israel did when they first fell in love with, with Yahweh, with, with the Lord. Um, 
and were on their honeymoon with him after he brought them out of Egypt and stood them by the base of Sinai, proposed a covenant of marriage with them, which they accepted, and he entered into this covenant, marrying them. And so in the wilderness, they were on their honeymoon, basically. And um, the Lord makes it a point to mention how special that was in his heart. He talks about in that time in the wilderness, how much they loved him. Now you say, well, weren't they murmuring and complaining a lot? Not every, not every Jew. First of all, most of the murmuring and complaining came from the mixed multitude. Those who left Egypt as unbelievers never really did receive Messiah, uh, the Lord Yahweh. They murmured and complained. But most of the people, I'm convinced, that came out of Egypt loved the Lord. He makes it a point to say that. How that when you first fell in love with me and I married you, how in the wilderness you would write my name on the, on the flaps of your tents and on the uh, bridles of your horses, you were so in love with me. And Israel's relationship with the Lord was beautiful initially. But after a while, they got used to God. The worst thing that can happen to your marriage is when you get used to each other. The worst that can happen in your relationship with God is when you get used to God. They got used to God. And as such, their love for him cooled and their passion for him faded. And many years later, after they had turned to idols and their hearts were cold toward God, God laments this when he says to them through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 2, I'll read you verses 2 and 5. He said, go and shout this message to Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember how eager you were to please me as a young bride years ago, long ago. How you loved me and followed me even through the barren wilderness. Verse 5, this is what the Lord says. What did your ancestors find wrong with me that led them to stray so far from me? They worship worthless idols only to become worthless themselves. God is lamenting. Haven't I been a good husband to you, Israel? I loved you with all my heart. What did I do that you would turn away from me to other lovers, God, foreign gods, idols? God's heart was broken. And listen to me. This cooling off in love and passion for God was not limited to Israel in the Old Testament. It is very much a reality in New Testament times, very much a reality today. Jesus laments this very thing in his letter to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. You all know it, but after he talks about all their accomplishments and how faithful they were in ministry, he says, but nevertheless, I have one thing against you. You've left your first love. The Greek implies honeymoon love, passionate love. Jesus is saying, look, you're still serving me, but you're going through the motions, but have lost the emotion. You've become mechanical robots, a well-oiled machine, but there's no passion left. Now, one pastor rightly brings some balance to what we're saying. He said, and I quote, A couple that has been married for a long time doesn't always have the same thrill of excitement they had when they first dated. That is to be expected and is fine. If that excitement has matured into a depth of love that makes it even better than the first love, end quote. And that is so true. It's true in marriage. Cindy and I are going to celebrate, I think, 43 years this July 1st. And um, we don't have that 
super high emotional love that we had when we first met. But over 43 years, that love, you know, she doesn't write my name on too much anymore, but, uh, but uh, that's okay, honey. She makes up for it many other ways. But, um, but there is such a depth of love that we have for each other that so much transcends that emotional high you had when you first met and fell in love. But let me say this to you. That doesn't have to necessarily be gone either just because you're an older Christian. I have met Christians, and I'm sure some of you in this room have too. They've been Christians 30, 40 years, and folks, they just exude a love for Christ. I mean, it's, I, 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 sometimes I'm in awe. I mean, everywhere they go, they're talking to people about Jesus. They just love the Lord, singing songs, praising his name. It just comes out of them. And I'm, I'm like, Lord, I want that. I want to be in love with you like they are. I mean, just because you know the Lord a long time doesn't mean you have to be emotionless, that you don't have any passion, right? He indicts Ephesus for doing that very thing. I mean, just because we're not brand new Christians with all that emotional love doesn't mean we stop being in love with Jesus either. And so with that in mind, let me say that your obedience to Jesus will be directly tied to how much you are in love with him. Now, some would stop and say, well, look, in love. I, I'm in, I, I love Jesus. Isn't that enough? No. No. Because as I've said before, let me just say it again. I love my sister. I am in love with my wife. And every person in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about. Let me say it again. Your obedience to Jesus will, will be directly tied to how much you are in love with him, and the devil knows that only too well. And that's why he seeks to distract Christians with a new relationship. I can't tell you there's been numerous times when we have seen a young person come to Christ, or you know, maybe teens or 20s, and like the next day or that week, an old flame gets a hold, you know, contacts them through Facebook or this or that. It's the devil trying to pull this new convert away from Jesus. Trying to use a new love or an old love, a new relationship to become dominant and the focus instead of Jesus and our love for him. It could be something else, sometimes a new toy of some kind, a car or boat or something, motorcycle, right? That now becomes the whole focus. It could be a hobby. I'm not against hobbies, but some people make their hobbies their God. You know, like golf and some other things, have a hobby, go for it. But good heavens, don't worship it. Golf can make a great hobby. It makes a lousy God. Or something else in the world to take their heart away from Jesus as their first love. The devil is very, uh, he's, he's studied us for a long time. He knows how we tick. And he has designed this entire world to speak to, you know, he's orchestrated it, to appeal to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. In fact, let's just turn to 1 John 2 real quick. Because whether you realize it or not, guys, this is spiritual warfare. Let me read it to you. 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love this world, this fallen world system, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father, or I would say the love of Jesus in you. 
For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our, uh, in our achievements and possessions. These are not of the Father, but they are of the world. And what Paul is saying is, uh, I'm sorry, what John is saying is that the devil has purposely orchestrated this world to appeal to everything he knows we crave in the flesh, so that as he sends things our way, we will focus on those things and love them more than we love the Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, again, victory in spiritual warfare is very simple. If you're going to be a victorious Christian, if you're going to overcome the devil in this world, you must obey the Lord Jesus. And if you're going to consistently obey Jesus, you must love him supremely above everything and everyone else in your life. Uh, when I say supremely, that's what I mean. He must be number one. You can love your family, of course. You can love, you know, your, your spouse, your kids, and so on. But Jesus Christ must be supreme. You know, the Pharisees had a running debate. Which, which of the 613 uh, commandments in the law was the greatest? They were always arguing about this. So one day they came to Rabbi Jesus and said to him, Well, Rabbi, what is the greatest law commandment in the law? And he said to them, and I'll just read Mark 12, 30. The greatest, which means the um, supreme commandment of all of them is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. In other words, guys, you must be in love with the Lord. Because when you're in love with him, when you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Everything else will fall into place. I think it was Augustine who said, love God with all your heart and do whatever you want. Because he knew, if you really love God with all your heart, the things you want to do will only be things that please him. Listen to me. So much of our defeat in the Christian life is because, first of all, we're trying to have victory in our own strength. But secondly, we're trying to have victory because it will benefit us in some way. So I want to bring my eating under the control of the Spirit. I want to have victory over my overeating because I want to look good. I want to lose weight. I want to be able to wear nicer clothes and so on and so forth. Or I want to have victory over cigarettes because I know it's making me sick. And if I keep going, it's going to cut my life short. And I don't want to have a shortened life. Now, it's not wrong, of course, to eat right and stop smoking and everything else that might be affecting your health. But did you notice Jesus in any of that equation? I want to do this. I want to have victory basically for me. A love for Jesus was nowhere in that equation. We don't even realize it. Our love for Jesus is often nowhere to be found in the things we desire, even though we think we're desiring biblical things. And when that happens, guys, when Jesus really isn't our first love, we don't realize it oftentimes. But when Jesus really isn't our first love, all kinds of problems result. Problems that many Christians don't even realize are tied to their lack of love for and obedience to the Lord Jesus. Let me come at this from a slightly different perspective. And then we'll bring it back around and we'll close. You know, so many Christians have marital problems and financial problems. 
And they come to church wanting the pastor to basically fix their problems from the pulpit. That's why churches that do series and are usually out in the marquee, so everyone can see, right, the five keys to a happy marriage, the ten steps to financial success, those pack a church. Because people are interested in these kinds of topics, right? It is not wrong for, we'll say, a young couple to come to church. They got marital problems and or financial problems. And they come to church looking for the pastor to fix those problems from the pulpit or in counseling. But listen to me. A pastor can't fix a problem that really isn't the problem. So what are you talking about? Hear me out. Show me a husband who doesn't cherish his wife, who doesn't sacrifice himself for her according to God's command to him in Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 28, but instead is always barking at her to submit, to submit, to submit, because in her mind she exists to make him happy. You show me a man like that, and I'll show you a man that doesn't have a marriage problem. He's got a lordship problem. And by the same token, show me a wife who doesn't respect and submit to her husband, according to God's command to her in Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, verses 22 to 24, but is always challenging him, who seldom if ever submits to him when she disagrees with a decision he has to make. And I'll show you a woman who doesn't have a marriage problem. She's got a lordship problem. Likewise, show me a Christian couple who have spent themselves into financial debt to the point of bankruptcy by buying everything they see and can't live without, quote-unquote, spending money like crazy in disobedience to what Jesus commanded in Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth, or Paul admonished us in Ephesians, learn to be content with whatever you have. Stop striving for more and more things in this life. You show me people that Christians who are spending money like crazy, and I'll show you people that don't have a financial problem. They have a lordship problem. Guys, we can apply this to many of the issues and problems we face in our Christian lives. For example, show me a Christian who harbors resentment and bitterness or even hatred in their heart towards members of a different race or a politi political affiliation or towards those who have hurt or wronged them in some way. And I'll show you a Christian that doesn't have a relational problem. They have a lordship problem because it was the Lord Jesus Christ who commanded us to love our enemies, right? Matthew 5, verses 43 to 46. If your love for the Lord, Jesus Christ, is not greater than any difference you have with others, be it marital, political, racial, economic, or any other issue or conflict you may have with another and refuse to die to self with regard to, make no mistake about it, you have a lordship problem. When we refuse to love our enemies, or forgive those who have hurt us or wronged us in some way. Folks, the problem is not with them. The problem is with us. What is the problem? Well, let me just be brutally honest. We are demonstrating self-love. Self-love. We are loving, we are demonstrating the fact that we are loving ourselves more than we're, lo we're loving Jesus. In fact, we're flat out demonstrating we're not in love with Jesus. We're more in love with ourselves. But now imagine this. And don't miss this. Don't ever forget it. 
Imagine that Jesus Christ is standing right in front of you, holding your face in his nail-scarred hands, looking into your eyes and saying to you, I am in love with you. I love you so much. I went to the cross to prove how madly I am in love with you. Will you show your love for me by obeying what I've commanded you? How selfish do we have to be to see our Lord holding our face in his nail-scarred hands? I mean, telling us, I'm in love with you. You're my bride. I laid down, greater love is no one than to lay down their life for those they love. I demonstrated my love for you. Will you demonstrate your love for me by doing what I have commanded you? If you can't love your enemies for them, love them for me. If you can't forgive your friends or family who have hurt you for them, forgive them for me. Every time the devil tries to get in there and tempt you to do something that you know would take a piece of your heart away from Jesus, say, no, I love Jesus. I want to love him right now. And if I do this, or if I go there, or if I watch this, it's going to take a part of my heart away from him. And I don't want that. All right, you might be thinking, okay, I understand. How can I fall in love with Jesus? Let me give you three ways real quick. First of all, you have to desire it. Well, isn't that basic? Yeah. There's a lot of Christians who don't desire to be in love with Jesus. In fact, they hear me talk about being in love with Jesus, they get up and walk out. It's weird to them. That's weird. That's radical. Sure. It was radical that Jesus died for us. That was pretty radical, right? Why is it radical for me to, to want to be in love with him? It starts with desire. You have to desire to be in love with Jesus. If you're a Christian, as you once were, if you're not a Christian, we hope that you get saved today and fall in love with him. But you know where it has to start? In your mind. Yeah, your heart, soul, and strength, they're going to follow. It starts in your mind with the way you think about your relationship with him. Look, Satan has attacked your mind. That's where, that's where spiritual warfare takes place most of the time. Satan has attacked your mind with regard to your relationship with Jesus, making you think that someone or something else is going to be is more important, is going to bring more fulfillment into your life. I mean, read the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon bought into that. He loved God, then the devil got in his head and began to tell him that, no, 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 uh, everything you really need in life that's going to make you happy and fulfilled is not found with God. You've got to look for it in the world. And he spent years looking for uh, fulfillment in all the wrong places. You know the book of Ecclesiastes, we've talked about it. You can read his conclusion in chapter 13. But the devil has gotten in there. He has caused us to think that Jesus is not the most important person in our life. That other things, if we pursue them, will give us more happiness, more fulfillment. Maybe even make us a better Christian, depending on what you're talking about. Which is bizarre. But the devil has gotten there. That's why returning to Jesus and falling back in love with him has to start in your mind. 
with your thinking, right? You need to have a change of mind. And what I'm thinking of, what I'm talking about is repentance. I mean, last week we said the word repentance literally means to have a change of mind. I mean, wasn't that exactly what Jesus said to the church of Ephesus? You're still serving me. You're working yourself to the point of exhaustion for ministry. But I have this against you. You've left, your, you've, you've left honeymoon love. You've left honeymoon love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and come back to me. Do your first works. So, number one, desire it. Number two, pray fervently for it. And I mean fervently, day after day after day, for God to give you the grace to fall in love with Jesus until it becomes a reality. And ask Him to give you grace to start with your devotions. Many Christians have gotten away from their devotions. Now, I think devotions are best done in the morning. Not everybody's a morning person. Well, what I do is I wait for some free time, then I do my devotions. Wrong. Schedule a time for your devotions. If not in the morning, at lunch, or before bed, but you have to schedule the time. And we're talking about asking God to give you grace to get back into the Word, back into prayer. I mean, if you want to get to know, if you want to fall in love with somebody, you have to get to know them. And a lot of Christians need to relearn who Jesus is, how much he loves them. Guys, understand the love you're asking God for isn't human love. God forbid. I don't want to love God with my love. My love is a fallen, selfish love. That's what human love is. Oh, sure, it can manifest itself in some way, at some times very unselfishly. But overall, I love myself more than anybody else. That's what my flesh is all about. And when I pray to love God more, I don't want to love God with my love. It's selfish and self-seeking. What I want is God to give me his agape love that I might love him, him with his own love. You say, that's kind of weird. No, it's not. If you understand, God's love is the purest love in the whole universe. If I'm going to love God with any love, I want to love him with his love. And guys, the only way for God's love to fill us, it has to come from God. And the only way that's going to happen is we have to draw close to him every day. Because as we draw close to him every day, his love will flow into our hearts and bear the fruit of falling in love with Jesus. But listen, there's a caveat here. James has an important exhortation with regard to this. James 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, right? Then he goes on, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. The idea here, once again, is that of repentance. James is saying, look, you want to draw close to God? He wants to draw close to you. What's going to hinder you drawing close to God and God drawing close to you is the sin in your life. And so confess it. We all know what is hindering us from walking with God. And let's be honest, right? Either it's someone or it's something you're doing or something. The rich young ruler was his money sitting on the throne of his heart. Jesus said, get rid of it. Then you can follow me. Look, there's always something that the devil tries to use to, to, to come between us and God. And what we need to do is repent of it. If you want to make Jesus your first love, then make him your first love. And get rid of all the other loves. 
like Israel with the idols and things. Number three, have faith that God will answer your prayer because it is absolutely his will that you love him supremely. Only when you pray it, don't doubt it. Let me read these, these to you. You can write down the reference. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, right? And if we know that he hears us, then whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions we, has asked, we have asked of him. Well, how do I know God wants to answer this prayer? What? How do I know God wants you to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Jesus told us that. We're not guessing. You think the devil's whispering in your ear? Fall in love with Jesus. <laughs> of course not. You're hearing from the Holy Spirit. You're hearing from God. And if God is whispering in your ear something he wants to do that he's already said is his, his, his perfect will for your life to love him supremely, then when you pray it, don't doubt that he's going to give you what you need to fall in love with him, right? Philippians 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. This is God working, guys. God wants you to draw close to him. God wants you to fall in love with him. He's working in you both to will, to want it, and he'll give you the grace to do it. It belongs to him, the power. I'll give you one more. Galatians 3, verses 1 to 3 where Paul is writing to a church there in Galatia, to a bunch of Christians, and he says to them, starting in verse 1, Galatians 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit of God by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you not going to be made perfect in the flesh? How did you get saved, Galatians? Well, we just believed in Jesus. Well, how are you going to get sanctified? By working hard? No. The just shall what? Live by faith, not just get saved by faith. The idea is, look, if you were saved by faith through God's grace, that's true, you, we all were, by grace through his faith, through our faith, grace through faith then know that he is going to sanctify us through the same grace that we trust in through faith. In his classic book, Abide in Christ, I'll read this, we'll close. In his classic book, Abide in Christ, Andrew Murray reminds us that everything in the Christian life that God commands us to do or to be is always his responsibility to make a reality. If you haven't read that book, you really should. It's a life changer. Everything from abiding in Christ to bearing spiritual fruit to living a holy life to experiencing victory over the flesh, everything that God commands us to do or to be in the Christian life only becomes a reality through His power. So what are you saying? We do nothing? No. We pray and we believe. We believe. When you pray for something God has promised you and you believe it's yours, that's when the promise is energized. That's when you will receive all that God has promised. Only when we pray and really believe 
that God will do for us that which only he can do for us. And we cling to his promises and we pray by faith. That's when God's transforming power begins to come upon us, right? Paul said, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life that I now live, I don't live in the energy of my flesh. It's all about me trusting what God has promised, and I pray for it, and I trust God will give it to me. Murray writes, I'll read this and we'll close. Murray writes on this subject, Sanctification is a work of Christ alone. Received from, him by fa- received from him by faith. We have a choice in how we seek holiness. You could plug in sanctification, love, victory, because everything God's promised and wants for us. We have a choice in how we seek holiness because we have two natures at work in us, our fleshly fallen nature and our new spiritual nature in Christ. The way of the self, or in other words, the fallen nature, is the carnal way. We may trust Christ to help us, but we are focused on making our own sanctification happen. Now, look, we don't verbalize it this way, but often we're thinking it. Now, God, I just need, you know, I'm, I'm, I've almost climbed the wall of holiness. I just need a little boost from you to get me over. And God is saying, foolish child, foolish child, you are trying to do and to be in the energy of your flesh what only I can make you th- for you to do and be in the power of my spirit. That's what Murray is saying. We deceive ourselves into thinking because we want something good from the Bible and we're praying that God help us. This is, this is good. No, it's relying on the flesh. The spiritual way in which we can do nothing, the spiritual way in which we can do nothing, for we have died to self and sin, involves simply receiving Christ day by day, feeding on the word, drinking of the living water, just taking Jesus in. Receiving Christ day by day, letting him live and work in us at every step of the way all throughout our day. End quote. It's a walk of faith. It's a, I'm not saying we do nothing. I'm saying we, it's, God doesn't want us to try harder to be what he wants us to be. He wants us to abide longer because it's all through Jesus. Read John 15 again, verses 1 to 8. As long as the branch avi- abides in the vine, the branch will bear fruit. It's just natural. Abide in Christ. Everything God wants for your life through the power of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, will happen because you are abiding in Christ. You're in close communion with him. God willing, we will continue next time uh, in John 17. We are coming to the end of John 17, um, but uh, we'll pick it up next week. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your great and precious promises. And those promises are appropriated by faith, not hard work, or self-discipline, but by faith. Give us grace, Lord, to trust your word, to uh, cling to your promises, and by faith to ask them to become a reality in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to uh, to uh, bless this week with health, safety, and productivity for us 
and our families. We thank you and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.